Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this journey, all things Dominic Dunn. Friends, I have a treat for you today. I was lucky enough to talk with Robert Hoffler, author of Money, Murder, and Dominic Dunn, A Life in Several Acts, at the end of last week. I'm bringing part one of the conversation to you today. He's written a whole biography on Dominic Dunn, y'all. It's amazing. Robert is a wonderful author, not only of Dunn's biography, but many other works as well. It's time to talk about Dominic a little more. Let's investigate. Excited to be talking to you. This is such a treat. <laughs> well, I have to say, I spent the train ride back from Provincetown rereading this book. I, I haven't read it since it was first published uh, a few years ago. It is such a, oh God, I love it. I love it so hard. I thought I knew a lot and I read your book and I'm like, whoa. Well, I was a little surprised when I was reading it because I had forgotten so much and I and I'd forgotten how many people I interviewed because <laughs> there were a lot of interviews there. But one of the big things was that there's a Briscoe Center at the University of Texas at Austin and they had all of Dominic Dunn's his diaries, his notebooks. Oh, really? All of his scripts and the work he had done on them. So that was, I certainly couldn't have written the same book, even though I interviewed over 200 people. To kind of get Dominic Dunn's thoughts on things was very important. I'm so excited. We've never had a guest on Done and Done before, so welcome. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. Robert, I am so intrigued by the collection of works that you've written previous to your biography on Dominic Dunn. Can you talk a little bit about those and how they did or didn't lead you to writing about Dominic? Well, the book I wrote before the Dominic Dunn biography was a book called Sexplosion and it was kind of from Andy Warhol to A Clockwork Orange and how a group of pop rebels broke all the taboos. And it was set in the years 1968 to 1972, which were my college years, essentially. And when I looked back at those years, I was actually going to write a book about the 70s because I thought that all of these sex taboos had been broken in the 70s. But it was really a more confined period of 1968 to 1972. And by sex taboos, I mean regarding language and nudity and subject matter. And it was everything from novels like Gorvidal's Myra Breckenridge and Philip Ross's Portnoy's Complaint to, you know, theater pieces like Hair, The Boys in the Band, and of course, movies like Last Tango in Paris and A Clockwork Orange. And after doing that book, which was lots of bits and pieces, you know, uh, that I really was looking to do a biography again. And one day I came across the name of Dominic Dunn. I was reading something and I thought, 
oh, I don't know if anyone has done a biography on him. And so I checked around and there were no biographies on him. And I just thought he was a very interesting person because he was famous for the Vanity Fair articles, but also he almost became the face of like the Klaus Van Bulow murder trial, the O.J. Simpson trial, the Phil Spector. There were so many of them, the Michael Skakel trial, that intrigued me. And I was very intrigued by his novels because the novels were Ramana Clay's and they he he put in his novels things that he couldn't put in his Vanity Fair articles because they were libelous. They were things he knew, but things he couldn't prove. And so I was very interested in deciphering the two Mrs. Grenvilles and people like us and an inconvenient woman. And also he had a film career before that and a TV career before that. So that was interesting. You know, there was the thing, there are no second acts in American life. Well, Dominic Dunn had three or four acts to his, uh, his life. And I was very intrigued story. by that. And then there was what really resuscitated his his career was that his daughter was murdered. And he wrote about that for Vanity Fair. And he had met Tina Brown, who had just taken over Vanity Fair, because the first two issues of it were edited by a Condé Nast stalwart, Leo Lerman, and they were a disaster. Anyway, he met Tina Brown and he was very distracted and he apologized because he said, you know, I have to leave next month to attend uh, the trial of the man who murdered my daughter. And Tina Brown said, you know, if you write that, I would be interested in publishing that at Vanity Fair. And that's really where his covering trials began. It was the it was the trial of uh, the man who killed his daughter. And I, I thought all it. of that was fascinating. And the other thing was I had interviewed him some a, a couple of times and one thing that was very well known in publishing circles is that he was gay and yet he never really came out of the closet until the very end of his life and i always found that interesting how you can be a journalist but hide something about yourself because in a way if you're a journalist you have to be a truth teller and you primarily have to be a truth teller about yourself and of course, in most of his life, the worst thing you could say about a person, the most libelous thing you could say about a person is that they were homosexual. But he was exposing a lot of things about other people's lives that certainly didn't have to do with sexuality, but had to do with them having affairs or, you know, crimes that they had committed, which certainly affected their, their life. So I found it very interesting how someone could kind of divide their life into tra- telling the truth about other people, but not yourself. There's so much to unpack so anyway. there. So Doug <laughs> will talk about his writing. So going back to not only his true crime, the murder of his daughter, we've done a number of episodes sort of 
setting him up to this point, but you touch on something that I really find fascinating, which relates to just the most recent episode we did. Maybe a good way to get into it. You talk about him writing Ramana Clays, the previous episode mm-hmm. that we did centered in on Truman Capote's Black and White Ball. Yes. And how the Duns, Lenny and Nick, held the original in 64 and its inspiration. We've got some real hardcore Dominic Dunn fans here. But one of the things I found so fascinating was the relationship between Dominic and Truman. Because in some ways, Truman really was Dominic's savior by writing that letter. Like, get out of Oregon, man. But you watch how Truman sort of combusted out at the same time. And, you know, one was very out, one was not. Can you talk a little bit more about Dominic's struggle with his sexuality? Well, I found his diaries and things that he had written when he was in college. And so he wasn't someone who, you know, got married. And then a couple of years into his marriage, he realized that he was attracted to to men. He was he had a major affair in his life when he was in college, and he did write about that in his diary. He found it a very innocent love, and I think after that, he found a lot of the gay sex that he had to be very um, tawdry. And a lot of it was, because a lot of it was very anonymous, or it was just guys that he picked up. You know, there's a a famous book, uh, Full Service, and it was written by a guy who was kind of Hollywood's biggest pimp, Scotty Bowers. And, you know, he used Scotty Bowers, you know, service of hustlers. Right. So when he married Lenny, he was not an innocent. And also, he married her after they knew each other only six weeks. (laughs) She had a lot of money. I mean, she was an heiress. And he spent that money. And using her money is one of the ways that he entered Hollywood society because he was there working for Playhouse 90 and other TV shows. But he was only making $75 a week, which was was kind of typical then. Yeah, but they would not They rented a house on the beach on Santa Monica. So that put him in touch with Peter Lawford and the Kennedys and all of Hollywood. And he gave these huge parties. And in fact, I kind of forget how much they spent on their black and white party, which was a little bit later. I think that was 1964. 64. Yeah. But he was 64. very, he, he, he was just very troubled by it as a lot of men of his generation were. And it's something that he, in his novels, the topic of homosexuality comes up a lot, particularly men who were walkers, gay men who took out Betsy Bloomingdale or Nancy Reagan because right. their husbands didn't want to go to the opera or, or whatever. So it came up a lot. And then basically he came out of the closet in his last novel, Too Much Money. And that was a, a line that I have here that what he wrote near the end of it, because he he had an alter ego in a number of his novels, which was Gus Bailey. And Gus Bailey was essentially Dominic Dunn. And in the end of that novel, he has Gus Bailey say, 
I've been celibate for almost 20 years. Can't die with a secret, you know. I'm nervous about the kids, even though they're middle-aged men now. Not that they don't already know. I just never talk about it. It's been a lifelong problem. And he, of course, he's talking about his homosexuality and he had two sons. And so that was his kind of coming out. But he was very troubled by it. Well, and so troubled that he even back in 79, I think, with a letter unsent, he wrote coming out to his kids, right? Yes, he did. That I found a letter and then at the top of it, it said not sent. He'd gone to... He was living in Oregon at the time. Uh, he had left Los Angeles. He had no career left as a TV or a movie producer. And he was an alcoholic. And he went to Oregon to find himself. And one of the things he did is one weekend, he took the advocate course, which was a kind of an S type thing. And it was for homosexual men in San Francisco. And one of the things they advised is that you come out to your friends and relatives. So he wrote a letter to his children, which he did not send. Anybody also wrote a letter to his brother, John Gregory Dunn, and sister-in-law, Joan Didion, and did come out of the closet. And he was very upset when they did not respond to that letter. I'm going to hold on to them because I think there's that's a whole different <laughs> question that I want to ask you. Let me go back to that cabin sure. in Oregon, though, because Dunn gets that letter from Truman Capote, right? And yes. Dunn famously uses Gus Bailey for himself, but in Tumas's Grenville's, he's using Basil Plant. Like Truman is sort of a stand-in there. Yes. Talk about sort of the relationship between the two of them at all? Because Truman had his own feelings about Dunn and his, I guess, reticence about not claiming being gay. Well, what Truman Capote didn't like, he understood that not everyone had the freedom he did to come out. Number one, if you ever heard Truman Capote speak, you knew immediately that he was gay. So he couldn't hide. You know, if he would have said he was straight, people just would have laughed at him. That right. was not the case with, with, with Dominic Dunn. Dominic Dunn could, shall we say, to use a bad word, pass. You got it. <laughs> but what upset Truman is that Dominic lied about it. And he was constantly talking about his great love for Lenny, which I'm sure he did love her. But he also lied to her, and he kind of, you know, talked about, you know, his ex-wife perhaps a bit too much. You know, I'm sure he did love her, but some of it was also a way of saying to people, well, I'm straight, I have a wife and kid. And so Truman didn't like that. And then they had a falling out when... Dominic Dunn, after Oregon, came back to New York City, because you may remember that after In Cold Blood, Truman Capote, I remember he was on the Johnny Carson show all the time, and Dick Cavett, and he was talking about this great novel he was writing oh, called Andrew I just Prayer. did a whole hour-long episode yeah. about Lakote Basque 1965 yeah. over on Trashy Divorces. Yes. We've done an eight-week yeah. series about the Swans. <laughs> And Truman sold them all out and shoot them with a gun, bang, bang. It's terrible. 
Truman what a legacy. Well, there was that. Truman got very upset when he realized what the subject matter of the two Mrs. Grenvilles was, because it was a real-life murder from the 50s where this the Woodward family, Billy Woodward, very old blue blood money, married Anne, who was almost kind of like a chorus girl. She just wasn't at their level at all in society. And the mother, Elsie Woodward, hated her. Anne and Billy Woodward fought all the time and that became the subject for the two Mrs. Granvilles because Anne shot her husband. She said it was an accident. She said that she thought there was an intruder in their home. The mother thought that her son was murdered by Anne, but she stood behind her because they did not want a scandal. And that was the story of the two Mrs. Granvilles, but it was also part of the story of Cope Bosque, 1965, and it was also part of Truman Capote's story for Answered Prayers. So they fell out over that completely. So that was the story. I mean, there was also, going back earlier, I mean, you referred to the black and white ball that Truman Capote insisted that he be invited to the black and white ball that Dominic Dunn gave in 1964. And then when Truman Capote a few years later had his black and white ball, he didn't ball. He didn't invite Dominic Dunn. So do you want to know my secret supposition, Robert, about why that happened? What? Why the Dunns were not invited? So if you look at the timeline of the Frank Sinatra fight at the Daisy, it is the summer of 1966. So I think Mm -hmm. Truman Capote in those last days with his black and white composition notebook made the decision to keep Frank Sinatra and Mia Farrow over Uh Dominic and Lenny. Well, Dominic at that point really wasn't at the level of the other people who were at that black and white party. I mean, true, but Nick and Lenny gave the inspiration ball. Really, man? And you inserted yourself and brought the Deweys too? Come on, true. <laughs> no, no, uh, it was. <laughs> well, they were. He he was a real piece of work. It was also interesting because I had written a biography of Alan Carr, who was a producer who produced Grease in, of course, the the famous movie uh, musical, and he also produced La Caja Fall on on Broadway. And when Truman Capote was in Hollywood he gave him a jailhouse party and Dominic Dunn was invited to that. And they and Dominic and Truman Capote met then. But um, I, I think had by never that heard time, about that know, party. Truman that was Capote. such an interesting piece in your work. I wanted yeah, to know that was... two other writers. And this is something I found fascinating. I think this will get us to, Joan and John in a minute, because again, they're their own mountain of woe. But one thing I found truly interesting that just knocked me over was how Dominic had 
these twin specters of Noel Coward and Somerset Mom who would come sort of vis- visit in visionary form? <laughs> yes, he wrote about that in his diaries. That's when he lived in Beverly Hills and he had been a very successful TV producer, but he lost that job and then he was trying to segue into film producing. And it was he was able to do that through Mark Crowley, who wrote The Boys in the Band, because they knew each other. And Dominic Dunn, when he was a TV producer, had hired Mark Crowley to do a few TV treatments. Anyway... Between those two careers of TV producer and movie producer, he started drinking too much and doing a lot of drugs. And there was this kind of weird thing where he would have dialogues with Somerset Mom and, 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 and Noel Coward. I'd actually forgotten about that. <laughs> I just found that but, so uh, fascinating because you have him talking about like it being tacky to say, but from a young age, he just wanted to be rich and famous. So growing up with his abusive father, the sort of being the Catholic outcast in Greenwich society, his whole thing with the Kennedys is very odd too. It was such a thing to me because he gets all the bravery from his wartime thing. Like that's when he's like, I knew I had something in me that mm-hmm. I was made of sterner stuff than this. But it's so funny to me that he has all these amazing highs as well as lows, but is manifesting two inspirations even after he gets sober, right? For a little while, almost until Dominique's death. Is that kind of the right time period or does it continue? Well, the conversations that he had with Noel Coward and Somerset Mom was a little bit earlier. I kind of remember that being kind of like more like early. It was in the 70s. And okay. it was more around the time where he was between careers. Of course, you know, there, there were many between careers for Dominic. There was between his TV producing in the late 60s to his movie producing in the early 70s. And then after the movie producing fell apart, then there was, you know, the writer career came later. But there were these conversations that he had with these two men, and he wrote them down. And I suppose that was part of his, you know, wanting to be a writer. And and the reason that he, he didn't pursue the writing earlier was because of John Gregory Dunn, because that was kind of considered his turf. And so, you know, big brother stay off my turf. Because there's sort of a, so, but go ahead. The other thing I have to say about Somerset Mon and Noel Coward is, again, it's this kind of gay leitmotif that goes through his career. I mean, he wasn't, you know, channeling, Ernest Hemingway and, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald. He was kind of channeling to gay writers who were, you know, pretty much out there as being gay. Dunn is always sort of running that energy through his work. Well, it, it was always there. I don't 
read many of the <laughs> reviews that people write on Amazon.com, but I remember some of the negative reviews were really that I concentrated too much on Dominic Dunn's uh, homosexuality. But I, I think it was the huge problem in his life. And of course, that started with his father because his father was calling him a sissy. Now, in the 30s, that that was the same as calling someone gay. Well, and so, I remember you writing about it, it. He was always told like, oh, he should have been a girl. And like how he just remembered that hurt his entire life. Yeah, that's that's pretty rough. And I think it's one of the reasons that he also felt compelled to get married. Also, for someone like Gore Vidal or Truman Capote, they had a great talent for writing, so they didn't have to get married. But for someone who's a producer, that would have been unthinkable to be a producer in 50s Hollywood and not be married because... A producer is a much more nebulous talent, and it's more about socializing than it is anything else. But certainly, he worked for a number of gay producers who were married with children. That was on Playhouse 90 and other other programs that he worked for. Let's talk about John Gregory for a second. There's such a complicated relationship between brothers. John Gregory is younger than Dominic, also famously married to Joan Didion. Very complicated relationship. Can can you talk about that at all? And I didn't know their nicknames as well. That Dunn had for John Gregory and Joan was delightful. Joan Didion and and John Gregory Dunn were working in the magazine world in New York City in the 60s, and they had ambitions to come west. I mean, Joan Didion was from California. She grew up in in California. But they had, had ambitions to come to Hollywood, and it was Dominic who showed them around town. Although his star was already beginning to fade a little bit in the late 60s when they came to Hollywood. But it was through Dominic. I had mentioned that Mark Crowley made him producer on the Boys in the Band movie. And when Dominic had that credit, he used that credit to make the movie Panic in Needle Park, which was Al Pacino's first movie, and Don Gregory Dunn and Joan Didion wrote the screenplay for that. So, I mean, I hate to use the word using, but, you know, oh, well, I've got this great screenplay that just happened to be, have been written by my brother and sister-in-law, and of course, they needed a producer, and Dominic was that producer, and they got that movie made. And then they also, then it was Dominic had the idea, let's take Joan Didion's novel, play it as it lays, and turn that into a movie. And of course, they wrote the screenplay for that. But at that time, when they were even making play it as it lays, they were not socializing anymore. 
because Dominic had already developed a reputation as being something of a druggie, which was very common in the early 70s, certainly. The Didians, as they were called in Hollywood, much to John Gregory Dunn's uh, dismay, lived in Trancas on the beach, and they gave these Sunday afternoon soirees. And, you know, the young Steven Spielberg would be there with the young Martin Scorsese, and they would have Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward over, and all of these, you know, major players. And Joel Schumacher was the costume designer on Play It As It Lays, and of course he went on to be a a major film director. But he talked about that, you know, they never had Dominic at those soirees, even though he was the one who really started their career in Hollywood. Now, obviously, with the publication of Play It As, As It Lays, Joan Didion probably would have found her way onto the Hollywood A list anyway. But certainly, Dominic speeded that process along. And then, after Play It As It Lays, Dominic Dunn made the disastrous Elizabeth Taylor movie, Ash Wednesday. Oh, we had a whole episode about it. God bless. (laughs) Yeah, that that was the end of his, you know, uh, because the screenplay, which was dreadful, was written by the agent Sue Menger's boyfriend and... Dominic Dunn went around town telling people, well, if the real story of this movie ever gets made, it should be called When a Fat Girl Falls in Love. And of course, that was published in The Hollywood Reporter. And that was the end of Dominic Dunn because Sue Mengers was a very powerful woman in Hollywood at that time. Basically, the movie got made because Sue Mengers was powerful and her boyfriend, Jean-Claude Tramont, Yes, and, you know, Dominic knew that he used to be called Jack Schwartz, and he was from the Bronx. So that made Sue Mangers that he knew, that she knew, that he knew. <laughs> it just kind of goes back and forth. So that was the end of, of Dominic's career in Hollywood, the Elizabeth Taylor movie. You write your biography uh, with the subtitle of A Life in Several Acts. Do you think that there is one act within Dominic's life that you loved researching the most or did it all come together in sort of a holistic picture? It was probably the section where he leaves Hollywood and a number of people said he was either going to find himself or he was going to kill himself. Right. And well, and then his brother Stephen does commit suicide. Death by suicide. Did, did, did commit suicide. So, you know, sometimes that does run in families. And Dominic had even speculated if his young youngest brother's suicide didn't prevent him from committing suicide. But that whole period in Oregon, I think I wrote like 15,000 words. And then finally, I was going like, this is ridiculous. I'm going to have to cut this down to 4,000 words. So when I kind of look at the the, the novel, I, I mean the uh, biography, I actually find that the most intriguing. I I, I, I suppose the thing that really it strikes also, me from that period about him is I fed the same bird every day. I'd never once in my life <laughs> thought about feeding a bird. Like that was not my concern. I mean, he goes from this very active 
I mean, even though it was definitely on the downslide, but party every night, ironing invitations. When I'm not at the party, I am memorizing the party and putting it down to absolute solace for six months. It's a fascinating period. It's a fascinating period. However, what's interesting is Dominic felt he learned a lesson from that and all of those Hollywood years and all going to all those parties was a waste of time. However, what happened is he used those connections and those anecdotes when it came to writing for Vanity Fair. And the reason that Tina Brown was so interested in hiring him at Vanity Fair is she had said, he has connections like nobody I know. Exactly. That he knew everyone. And one of the things that Dominic didn't write about, but he helped other uh, reporters with their stories, was there was a the David Bagelman scandal at Columbia Pictures, which was in the late 70s, and he had embezzled money. And the actor Cliff Robertson found that there was a check that he was for $10,000, but he didn't know what that had to do with anything. Where was this $10? He hadn't done any work for Columbia Pictures. And because of that, because he made a stink out of it, he was ostracized from Hollywood. But that whole David Bagelman embezzling from Columbia Pictures was something that Dominic fed a great deal of information to not one reporter, but competing reporters, like for the Wall Street Journal, for the New York Times, and whatever. And he was so fascinated with the life of reporters that he was like, hey, I can do this, and I, and I want to do this. And it was Tina Brown who you know, published his Justice article, which was about the murder trial of John Sweeney, who was the guy who killed Dominic Dunn, his his, his daughter, that then she, you know, Tina Brown was so smart to give him the Klaus von Bülow trial to cover because Dominic knew that high society world. He knew, you know, Sonny Van Bülow's children. He knew Andrea Reynolds, who was the mistress of Klaus von Bülow. And so he just knew that world. And so he, you know, his article, Fatal Charm, about Klaus Van Bülow and Andrea Reynolds uh, and Helmut Newton got them to pose in black leather, you know, really made Vanity Fair. But it was all of those connections that Dominic had made in, you know, Hollywood that led to all of that. And then near the end of his life, Dominic was completely, completely obsessed about being invited to parties and being hurt if people didn't invite him and giving himself big parties, you know, for his 80th birthday or whatever, and inviting people who had insulted him in the past. But he kind of went back to being the person he was in Hollywood before. The only difference is now he was successful. And that's where we're going to end this episode. End of part one, but no need to wait too long. 
part two will be coming to you next Monday, July 12th, on a surprise Dunday. Thanks so much to Robert and you for joining us today. Thanks for listening and your kind feedback. Until we meet again, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.